Hello everybody, welcome back to Rob Reads to You. I hope this finds you and yours uh, healthy and safe. Uh, we're continuing on with Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Uh, last time we read, we learned a little bit more about uh, Miss Lavender's backstory uh, with Paul Irving's father, and then she and Paul Irving met, and Paul was, you know, kept comparing her to his little mother. Uh, and then... Uh, Anne and Gilbert accidentally predicted a storm that actually came and destroyed a large portion of the town. So, yeah. All right. So, chapter 25. An Avonlea Scandal. One blithe June morning, a fortnight after Uncle Abe's storm, Anne came slowly through the Green Gables yard from the garden, carrying in her hands two blighted stalks of white narcissus. Look, Marilla, she said sorrowfully, holding up the flowers before the eyes of a grim lady, with her hair quaffed in a green gingham apron, who was going into the house with a plucked chicken. These are the only buds the storm spared, and even they are imperfect. I'm so sorry. I wanted some for Matthew's grave. He was always so fond of June lilies. I kind of miss them myself, admitted Marilla. Though it doesn't seem right to lament over them when so many worse things have happened. All the crops destroyed as well as the fruit. But people have sown their oats over again, said Anne comfortingly. And Mr. Harrison says he thinks if we have a good summer, they will come out all right, all right, though late. And my annuals are all coming up again. But oh, nothing can replace the June lilies. Poor little Hester Gray will have none either. I went all the way back to her garden last night, but there wasn't one. I'm sure she'll miss them. I don't think it's right for you to say such things, Anne. I really don't, said Marilla severely. Hester Gray has been dead for thirty years, and her spirit is in heaven. I hope. Yes, but I believe she loves and remembers her garden here still, said Anne. I'm sure no matter how long I'd lived in heaven, I'd like to look down and see somebody putting flowers on my grave. If I had had a garden here like Hester Gray's, it would take me more than thirty years, even in heaven, to forget being homesick for it by spells. Well, don't let the twins hear you talking like that, was Marilla's feeble protest as she carried her chicken into the house. Anne pinned her narcissi on her, on her hair and went to the lane gate, where she stood for a while sunning herself in the June brightness before going in to attend to her Saturday morning duties. The world was growing lovely again. Old Mother Nature was doing her best to remove the traces of the storm, and, though she was not to succeed fully for many a moon, she was really accomplishing wonders. "'I wish I could just be idle all day today,' Anne told a bluebird, who was singing and swinging on a willow bough. "'But a school ma'am, who is also helping to bring up twins, can't indulge in laziness, Birdie. "'How sweet you are singing, little bird.' You are just putting the feeling of feelings of my heart into song ever so much better than I could myself. Why, who is coming? An express wagon was jolting up the lane, with two people on the front seat and a big trunk behind. When it drew near, Anne recognized the driver as the son of the station agent at Bright River. But his companion was a stranger. A scrap of a woman who sprang nimbly down at the gate almost before the horse came to a standstill. She was a very pretty little person evidently nearer fifty than forty, but with rosy cheeks, sparkling black eyes, and shining black hair, surmounted by a wonderful, beflowered, and beplumed bonnet. 
In spite of having driven eight miles over a dusty road, she was as neat as if she had just stepped out of the proverbial bandbox. "'Is this where Mr. James A. Harrison lives?' she inquired briskly. "'No, Mr. Harrison lives over there,' said Anne, quite lost in astonishment. "'Well, I did think this place seemed too tidy. Much too tidy for James A. to be living here, unless he has greatly changed since I knew him,' chirped the little lady. "'Is it true that James A. is going to be married to some woman living in this settlement?' "'No, oh, no!' cried Anne, flushing so guiltily that the stranger looked curiously at her, as if she half suspected her of matrimonial designs on Mr. Harrison. "'But I saw it in an island paper,' persisted the fair unknown. "'A friend sent a marked copy to me. Friends are always so ready to do such things. James A.'s name was written in over New Citizen.' "'Oh, that note was only meant as a joke,' gasped Anne. "'Mr. Harrison has no intention of marrying anybody.' "'I assure you he hasn't.' "'I'm very glad to hear it,' said the rosy lady, "'climbing nimbly back to her seat in the wagon, "'because he happens to be married already. "'I am his wife. "'Oh, you may well look surprised. "'I suppose he has been masquerading as a bachelor "'and breaking hearts right and left. "'Well, well, James, eh?' "'Nodding vigorously over the fields at the long white house. "'Your fun is over. "'I am here, though I wouldn't have bothered coming "'if I hadn't thought you were up to some mischief. "'I suppose—' turning to Anne. That parrot of his is as, is as profane as ever. His parrot is dead, I, I think, gasped poor Anne, who couldn't have felt sure of her own name at that precise moment. Dead? Everything will be all right, then, cried the rosy lady, lady jubilantly. I can manage James, James A. if that bird is out of the way. With which cryptic utterance she went joyfully on her way, and Anne flew to the kitchen door to meet Marilla. "'And who is that woman?' "'Marilla,' said Anne solemnly, but with dancing eyes. "'Do I look as if I were crazy?' "'Not more so than usual,' said Marilla, with no thought of being sarcastic. "'Well, then, do you think I am awake? "'And what nonsense has got into you? "'Who was that woman, I say?' "'Marilla, if I'm not crazy and not asleep, "'she can't be such stuff as dreams are made of. "'She must be real.' Anyway, I'm sure I couldn't have imagined such a bonnet. She says she is Mr. Harrison's wife, Marilla. Marilla stared in her turn. His wife? And surely, then, what has he been passing himself off as an unmarried man for? I don't suppose he did, really, said Anne, trying to be just. He never said he wasn't married. People simply took it for granted. Oh, Marilla, what will Mrs. Lynde say to this? They found out what Mrs. Lynde had to say when she came up that evening. Mrs. Lynde wasn't surprised. Mrs. Lynde had always expected something of the sort. Mrs. Lynde had always known there was something about Mr. Harrison. To think of his deserting his wife, she said indignantly. It's like something you'd read of in the States, but who would expect such a thing to happen right here in Avonlea? But we don't know that he deserted her, protested Anne, determined to believe her friend innocent till he was proved guilty. We don't know the rights of it at all. Well, we soon will. I'm going straight over there, said Mrs. Lynde, who had never learned that there was such a word as delicacy in the dictionary. I'm not supposed to know anything about her arrival, and Mr. Harrison was to bring some medicine for Thomas from Carmody today, so that will be a good excuse. I'll find out the whole story and come in and tell you on my way back. Mrs. Lynde rushed in where Anne feared to tread. Nothing would have induced the latter to go over to the Harrison place, but she had her natural and proper share of curiosity, and she felt secretly glad that Mrs. Lynde was going to solve the mystery. 
She and Marilla waited expectantly for that good lady's return, but waited in vain. Mrs. Lynde did not revisit Green Gables that night. Davy, arriving home at nine o'clock from the Bolter place, explained why. I met Mrs. Lynde and some strange woman in the hollow, he said, and gracious how they were talking both at once. Mrs. Lynde said to tell you she was sorry it was too late to call tonight. And I'm awfully hungry. We had tea at Milty's at four, and I think Mrs. Bolter is real mean. She didn't give us any preserves or cake, and even the bread was scarce. Davy, when you go visiting, you must never criticize anything you were given to eat, said Anne solemnly. It is very bad manners. All right, I'll only think it, said Davy cheerfully. Do give a fellow some supper, Anne. Anne looked at Marilla, who followed her into the pantry and shut the door cautiously. You can give him some jam on his bread, Anne. I know what tea at Levi Bolter's is apt to be. Davy took his slice of bread and jam with a sigh. It's a kind of disappointing world after all, he remarked. Milty has a cat that takes fits. She's took a, reg a fit regular every day for three weeks. Milty says it's awful fun to watch her. I went down today on purpose to see her have one, but the mean old thing wouldn't take a fit and just kept healthy as healthy, though Milty and me hung round all the afternoon and waited. But never mind. Davy brightened up as the insidious comfort of the plum jam stole into his soul. Maybe I'll see her in one sometime yet. It doesn't seem likely she'd stop having them all at once when she's been in so in the habit of it, does it? This jam is awful nice. Davy had no sorrows that plum jam could not cure. Sunday proved so rainy that there was no stirring abroad, but by Monday everybody had heard some version of the Harrison story. The school buzzed with it, and Davy came home full of information. Marilla, Mr. Harrison has a new wife. Well, not exactly new, but they've stopped being married for quite a spell, Milty says. I always suppose people had to keep on being married once they'd begun, but Milty says no, there's ways of stopping it if you can't agree. Milty says one way is just to start off and leave your wife, and that's what Mr. Harrison did. Milty says Mr. Harrison left his wife because she throwed things at him. Hard things. And Artie Sloan says it was because she wouldn't let him smoke. And Ned Clay says it was because she never let up scolding him. I wouldn't let you leave my wife for anything like that. I just put my foot down and say, Mrs. Davy, you've just got to do what'll please me because I'm a man. That'd settle her pretty quick, I guess. But Annetta Clay says she left him because he wouldn't scrape his boots at the door. And she doesn't blame her. I'm going right over to Mr. Harrison's this minute and see what she's like. Davy soon returned, somewhat cast down. Mrs. Harrison was away. She's gone to Carmody with Mrs. Rachel Lynde to get new paper for the parlor. And Mr. Harrison said to tell Anne to go over and see him because he wants to have a talk with her. And say the floor is scrubbed and Mr. Harrison is shaved, though there wasn't any, any preaching yesterday. The Harrison kitchen wore a very unfamiliar look to Anne. The floor was indeed scrubbed to a wonderful pitch of purity, and so was every article of furniture in the room. The stove was polished until she, until she could see her face in it. The walls were whitewashed, and the window panes sparkled in the sunlight. By the table sat Mr. Harrison in his working clothes, which on Friday had been noted for sundry rents and tatters, but which were now neatly patched and brushed. He was sprucely shaved, and what little hair he had was carefully trimmed. "'Sit down, Anne, sit down,' said Mr. Harrison, in a tone but two degrees removed from that which Avonlea people used at funerals. "'Emily's gone over to Carmody with Rachel Lynde. She's struck up a lifelong friendship already with Rachel Lynde. Beats all how contrary women are. 
Well, and my easy times are over. All over. It's neatness and tidiness for me for the rest of my natural life, I suppose. Mr. Harrison did his best to speak dolefully, but an irrepressible twinkle in his eye betrayed him. "'Mr. Harrison, you are glad your wife has come back,' cried Anne, shaking her finger at him. "'You needn't pretend you're not, because I can see it plainly.' Mr. Harrison relaxed into a sheepish smile. "'Well, well, but I'm getting used to it,' he conceded. "'I can't say I was sorry to see Emily.' A man really needs some protection in a community like this, where he can't play a game of checkers with a neighbor without being accused of wanting to marry that neighbor's sister and having it put in the paper. Nobody would have supposed you went to see Isabella Andrews if you hadn't pretended to be unmarried, said Anne severely. I didn't pretend I was. If anybody would have asked me if I was married, I'd have said I was. But they just took it for granted. I wasn't anxious to talk about the matter. I was feeling too sore over it. It would have been nuts for Mrs. Rachel Lynde if she had known my wife had left me, wouldn't it now? But some people say that you left her. She started it, and she started it. I'm going to tell you the whole story, for I don't want you to think worse of me than I deserve. Nor of Emily, neither. But let's go out on the veranda. Everything is so fearful neat in here that it kind of makes me homesick. I suppose I'll get used to it after a while, but it eases me up to look at the yard. Emily hasn't had time to tidy it up yet. As soon as they were comfortably seated on the veranda, Mr. Harrison began his tale of woe. I lived in Scottsford, New Brunswick, before I came here, Anne. My sister kept house for me, and she suited me fine. She was just reasonably tidy, and she let me alone and spoiled me, so Emily says. But three years ago she died. Before she died, she worried a lot about what was to become of me, and finally she got me to promise I'd get married. She advised me to take Emily Scott, because Emily had money of her own, and was a pattern housekeeper. I said, says I, Emily Scott wouldn't look at me. You ask her and see, says my sister, and just to ease her mind, I promised her I would. And I did. And Emily said she'd have me. Never was so surprised in my life, Anne. A smart, pretty little woman like her and an old fellow like me? I tell you, I thought at first I was in luck. Well, we were married and took a little wedding trip up to St. John for a fortnight, and then we went home. We got home at ten o'clock at night, and I give you my word, Anne, that in half an hour that woman was at work house cleaning. Oh, I know you're thinking my house needed it. You've got a very expressive face, Anne. Your thoughts just come out on it like paint, like print. But it didn't. Not that bad. I'd got pretty mixed up while I was keeping Bachelor's Hall, I admit, but I'd got a woman to come in and clean it up before I was married, and there'd been considerable painting and fixing done. I tell you, if you took Emily into a brand new white marble palace, she'd be into the scrubbing as soon as she could get an old dress on. Well, she cleaned house till one o'clock that night, and at four she was up and at it again. And she kept on that way. As far as I could see, she never stopped. It was scour and sweep and dust everlasting, except on Sundays, and then she was just longing for Monday to begin again. But it was her way of amusing herself, and I could have reconciled myself to it if she'd left me alone. But that she wouldn't do. She'd set out to make me over, but she hadn't caught me young enough. I wasn't allowed to come into the house unless I changed my boots for slippers at the door. I daresn't smoke a pipe for my life unless I went into the barn. And I didn't use good enough grammar. Emily had been a school teacher in her early life, and she'd never got over it. 
Then she hated to see me eaten with my knife. Well, there it was, pick and nag everlasting. But I suppose, and to be fair, I was cantankerous too. I didn't try to improve as I might have done. I just got cranky and disagreeable when she found fault. I told her one day she hadn't complained of my grammar when I proposed to her. It wasn't an overly tactful thing to say. A woman would forgive her man for beating her sooner than for hinting she was too much pleased to get him. Well, we bickered along like and like that, and it wasn't exactly pleasant. But we might have got used to each other after a spell if it hadn't been for Ginger. Ginger was the rock we split on at last. Emily didn't like parrots, and she couldn't stand Ginger's profane habits of speech. I was attached to the bird for my brother the sailor's sake. My brother the sailor was a pet of mine when we were little tads, and he'd sent Ginger to me when he was dying. I didn't see any sense in getting worked up over his swearing. There's nothing I hate worse than profanity in a human being, but in a parrot, that's just repeating what it's heard with no more understanding of it than I'd have of Chinese. Allowances might be made. But Emily couldn't see it that way. Women ain't logical. She tried to break Ginger of swearing, but she hadn't any better success than she had in trying to make me stop saying I seen and them things. Seemed as if the more she tried, the worse Ginger got, same as me. Well, things went on like this, both of us getting raspier, till the climax came. Emily invited our minister and his wife to tea, and another minister and his wife that was visiting them. I'd promised to put Ginger away in some safe place where nobody would hear him. Emily wouldn't touch his cage with a ten-foot pole. And I meant to do it, for I didn't want the ministers to hear anything unpleasant in my house. But it slipped my mind. Emily was worrying me so much about clean collars and grammar that it wasn't any wonder, and I never thought of that poor parrot till we sat down to tea. Just as Minister Number One was in the very middle of saying grace, Ginger, who was on the veranda outside the dining room window, lifted up his voice. The gobbler had come into view in the yard, and the sight of a gobbler always had an unwholesome effect on Ginger. He surpassed himself that time. You can smile, Anne, and I don't deny I've chuckled some over it since myself. But at the time, I felt almost as much mortified as Emily. I went out and carried Ginger to the barn. I can't say I enjoyed that meal. I knew by the look, Emily, that there was trouble brewing for Ginger and James A. When the folks went away, I started for the cow pasture, and on the way I did some thinking. I felt sorry for Emily, and kind of fancied I hadn't been so thoughtful of her as I might. And besides, I wondered if the ministers would think that Ginger had learned some of his vocabulary from me. Long and short of it was, I decided that Ginger would have to be mercifully disposed of. And when I drove the cows home, I went in to tell Emily so. But there was no Emily, and there was a letter on the table. Just according to the rule in storybooks. Emily writ that I'd have to choose between her and Ginger. She'd gone back to her own house, and there she would stay till I went and told her I'd got rid of that parrot. I was all riled up, Anne, and I said she might stay till doomsday if she waited for that, and I stuck to it. I packed up her belongings and sent them after her. Made an awful lot of talk. Scottsford was pretty near as bad as Avonlea for gossip. And everybody sympathized with Emily. It kept me all cross and cantankerous, and... I saw I'd have to get out or I'd never have any peace. I concluded I'd come to the island. I'd been here when I was a boy, and I liked it. 
But Emily had always said she wouldn't live in a place where folks were scared to walk out after dark for fear they'd fall off the edge. So, just to be contrary, I moved over here. And that's all there is to it. I had never heard a word from or about Emily till I come home from the backfield Saturday and found her scrubbing the floor, but with the first decent dinner I'd had since she left me already on the table. She told me to eat it first, and then we'd talk. By which I concluded that Emily had learned some lessons about getting along with a man. So she's here, and she's going to stay. Seeing that Ginger's dead, and the island some bigger than she thought. Well, there's Mrs. Linden her now. No, don't go, Anne. Stay and get acquainted with Emily. She took quite a notion to you Saturday. Wanted to know who that handsome red-haired girl was at the next house. Mrs. Harrison welcomed Anne radiantly and insisted on her staying to tea. James A. has been telling me all about you and how kind you've been, making cakes and things for him, she said. I want to get acquainted with all my new neighbors just as soon as possible. Mrs. Lynde is a lovely woman, isn't she? So friendly. When Anne went home in the sweet June dusk, Mrs. Harrison went with her across the fields where the fireflies were lighting their starry lamps. I suppose, said Mrs. Harrison confidentially, that James A. has told you our story. Yes, then I needn't tell it, for James A. is a just man, and he would tell the truth. The blame was far from being all on his side. I can see that now. I wasn't back in my own house an hour before I wished I hadn't been so hasty, but I wouldn't give in. I see now that I expected too much of a man, and I was real foolish to mind his bad grammar. It doesn't matter if a man does use bad grammar so long as he is a good provider and doesn't go poking round the pantry to see how much sugar you've used in a week. I feel that James A. and I are going to be real happy now. I wish I knew who Observer is so that I could thank him. I owe him a real debt of gratitude. Anne kept her own counsel, and Mrs. Harrison never knew that her gratitude found its way to its object. Anne felt rather bewildered over the far-reaching consequences of those foolish notes. They had reconciled a man to his wife and made the reputation of a prophet. Mrs. Lynde was in the Green Gables kitchen. She had been telling the whole story to Marilla. "'Well, and how do you like Mrs. Harrison?' she asked Anne. "'Very much. I think she's a real nice little woman.' "'That's exactly what she is.' said Mrs. Rachel with emphasis, and as I've just been saying to Marilla, I think we are all to overlook Mr. Harrison's peculiarities for her sake, and try to make her feel at home here, that's what. Well, I must get back. Thomas will be wearying for me. I get out a little since Eliza came, and he's seemed a lot better these past few days, but I never like to be long away from him. I hear Gilbert Blythe has resigned from White Sands. He'll be off to college in the fall, I suppose.' Mrs. Rachel looked sharply at Anne, but Anne was bending over a sleepy Davy nodding on the sofa, and nothing was to be read in her face. She carried Davy away, her oval, girlish cheek pressed against his curly, yellow head. As they went up the stairs, Davy flung a tired arm about Anne's neck and gave her a warm hug and a sticky kiss. "'You're awful nice, Anne. Milty Bolter wrote on his slate today and showed it to Jenny Sloan. Rose is red and violet's blue, sugar's sweet, and so are you. And that expresses my feelings for you exactly, Anne. Chapter 26 Around the Bend Thomas Lynde faded out of life as quietly and unobtrusively as he had lived it. 
His wife was a tender, patient, unwearied nurse. Sometimes Rachel had been a little hard on her Thomas in health, when his slowness or meekness had provoked her. But when he became ill, no voice could be lower, no hand more gently skillful, no vigil more uncomplaining. "'You've been a good wife to me, Rachel,' he once said simply, when she was sitting by him in the dusk, holding his thin, blanched old hand in her work-hardened one. "'A good wife. I'm sorry I ain't leaving you better off, but the children will look after you. They're all smart, capable children, just like their mother. A good mother. A good woman.' He had fallen asleep then, and the next morning, just as the white dawn was creeping up over the pointed firs in the hollow, Marilla went softly into the east gable and wakened Anne. Anne, Thomas Lynde is gone. Their hired boy just brought the new word. I'm going right down to Rachel. On the day after Thomas Lynde's funeral, Marilla went about Green Gables with a strangely preoccupied air. Occasionally, she looked at Anne, seemed on the point of saying something, then shook her head and buttoned up her mouth. After tea, she went down to see Mrs. Rachel, and when she returned, she went to the East Gable, where Anne was correcting school exercises. "'How is Mrs. Lynde tonight?' asked the latter. "'She's feeling calmer and more composed,' answered Marilla, sitting down on Anne's bed, a proceeding which betokened some unusual mental excitement." For in Marilla's code of household ethics, to sit on a bed after it was made up was an unpardonable offense. But she's very lonely. Eliza had to go home today. Her son isn't well, and she felt she couldn't stay any longer. When I finish these exercises, I'll run down and chat a while with Mrs. Lynde, said Anne. I had intended to study some Latin composition tonight, but it can wait. I suppose Gilbert Blythe is going to college in the fall said Marilla jerkily. How would you like to go too, Anne? Anne looked up in astonishment. I would like it, of course, Marilla, but it isn't possible. I guess it can be made possible. I've always felt that you should go. I've never felt easy to think you were giving it all up on my account. But Marilla, I've never been sorry for a moment that I stayed home. I've been so happy. Oh, these past two years have just been delightful. Oh, yes, I know you've been contented enough, but that isn't the question exactly. You ought to go on with your education. You've saved enough to put you through one year at Redmond, and the money the stock brought in will do for another year. And there's scholarships and things you might win. Yes, but I can't go, Marilla. Your eyes are better, of course, but I can't leave you alone with the twins. They need so much looking after. I won't be alone with them. That's what I want to discuss with you. I had a long talk with Rachel tonight, and she's feeling dreadful bad over a good many things. She's not left very well off. It seems they mortgaged the farm eight years ago to give the youngest boy a start when he went west, and they've never been able to pay much more than the interest since. And then, of course, Thomas's illness has caused a good deal, one way or another. The farm will have to be sold, and Rachel thinks there'll be hardly anything left after the bills are settled. She says she'll have to go and live with Eliza, and it's breaking her heart to think of leaving Avonlea. A woman of her age doesn't make new friends and interests easy. And, Anne, as she talked about it, the thought came to me that I would ask her to come and live with me. But I thought I ought to talk it over with you first before I said anything to her. If I had Rachel living with me, you could go to college. 
how do you feel about it? I feel as if somebody had handed me the moon and I didn't know exactly what to do with it, said Anne dazedly. But as for asking Mrs. Lynde to come here, that is for you to decide, Marilla. Do you think, are you sure you would like it? Mrs. Lynde is a good woman and a kind neighbor, but, but, but she's got her faults, you mean to say. Well, she has, of course, but I think I'd rather put up with the far worse faults than see Rachel go away from Avonlea. I'd miss her terrible. She's the only close friend I've got here, and I'd be lost without her. We've been neighbors for forty-five years, and we've never had a quarrel. Though we came rather near at that time, you flew at Mrs. Rachel for calling you homely and red-haired. Do you remember, Anne? I should think I do, said Anne ruefully. People don't forget things like that. How I hated poor Mrs. Rachel in that moment. And then that apology you made her. Well, you were a handful in all conscience, Anne. I did feel so puzzled and bewildered how to manage you. Matthew understood you better. Matthew understood everything, said Anne softly, as she always spoke of him. Well, I think it could be managed so that Rachel and I wouldn't clash at all. It's always seemed to me that the reason two women can't get along in one house is that they try to share the same kitchen and get in each other's way. Now, if Rachel came here, she could have the north gable for her bedroom and the spare room for a kitchen as well as not, for we don't really need a spare room at all. She could put her stove there and what furniture she wanted to keep and be real comfortable and independent. She'll have enough to live on, of course. Her children will see to that. So all I'd be giving her would be the house would be house room. Yes, Anne, as far as I'm concerned, I'd like it. Then ask her, said Anne promptly. I'd be very sorry myself to see Mrs. Rachel go away. And if she comes, continued Marilla, you can go to college as well as not. She'll be company for me, and she'll do for the twins what I can't do. So there's no reason in the world why you shouldn't go. Anne had a long meditation at her window that night. Joy and regret struggled together in her heart. She had come at last, suddenly and unexpectedly, to the bend in the road. And college was around it, with a hundred rainbow hopes and visions. But Anne realized as well that when she rounded that curve, she must leave many sweet things behind. All the little simple duties and interests which had grown so dear to her in the last two years, and which she had glorified into beauty and delight by the enthusiasm she had put into them. She must give up her school, and she loved every one of her pupils, even the stupid and naughty ones. The mere thought of Paul Irving made her wonder if Redmond were such a name to conjure with after all. I've put out a lot of little roots these two years, Anne told the moon, and when I'm pulled up they're going to hurt a great deal. But it's best to go, I think, and as Marilla says, there's no good reason why I shouldn't. I must get out all my ambitions and dust them. Anne sent in her resignation the next day, and Mrs. Rachel, after a heart-to-heart -heart talk with Marilla, gratefully accepted the offer of a home at Green Gables. She elected to remain in her own house for the summer, however. The farm was not to be sold until the fall, and there were many arrangements to be made. "'I certainly never thought of living as far off the road as Green Gables,' sighed Mrs. Rachel to herself. "'But really, Green Gables doesn't seem as out of the world as it used to do.' 
Anne has lots of company, and the twins make it real lively. And anyhow, I'd rather live at the bottom of a well than leave Avonlea. These two decisions being noised abroad speedily ousted the arrival of Mrs. Harrison in popular gossip. Sage heads were shaken over Marilla Cuthbert's rash step in asking Mrs. Rachel to live with her. People opined that they wouldn't get on together. They were both too fond of their own way, and many doleful predictions were made, none of which disturbed the parties in question at all. They had come to a clear and distinct understanding of the respective duties and rights of their new arrangements, and meant to abide by them. "'I won't meddle with you, nor you with me,' Mrs. Rachel had said decidedly. "'And as for the twins, I'll be glad to do all I can for them, but I won't undertake to answer Davy's questions, that's what. I'm not an encyclopedia, neither am I a Philadelphia lawyer. You'll miss Anne for that.' "'Sometimes Anne's answers were about as queer as Davy's questions.' said Marilla dryly. The twins will miss her, and no mistake, but her future can't be sacrificed to Davy's thirst for information. When he asks questions I can't answer, I'll just tell him children should be seen and not heard. That was how I was brought up, and I don't know but what it was just as good a way as all these new-fangled notions for training children. Well, Anne's method seems to have worked fairly well with Davy, said Mrs. Lynde smilingly. He is a reformed character, that's what. "'He isn't a bad little soul,' conceded Marilla. "'I never expected to get as fond of those children as I have. "'Davy gets round you somehow. "'And Dora is a lovely child, although she is kind of... "'well, kind of... "'Monotonous? Exactly,' supplied Mrs. Rachel. "'Like a book where every page is the same, that's what. "'Dora will make a good, reliable woman, "'but she'll never set the pond on fire.' "'Well, that sort of folks are comfortable to have round, "'even if they're not as interesting as the other kind.' "'Gilbert Blythe was probably the only person "'to whom the news of Anne's resignation brought unmixed pleasure. "'Her pupils looked upon it as a sheer catastrophe. "'Annetta Bell had hysterics when she went home. "'Anthony Pye fought two pitched and unprovoked battles "'with other boys by way of relieving his feelings. "'Robert Shaw cried all night.' Paul Irving defiantly told his grandmother that she needn't expect him to eat any porridge for a week. "'I can't do it, Grandma,' he said. "'I don't really know if I could eat anything. I feel as if there was a dreadful lump in my throat. I'd have cried coming home from school if Jake Donnell hadn't been watching me. I believe I will cry after I go to bed. It wouldn't show in my eyes tomorrow, would it? And it would be such a relief. But anyway, I can't eat porridge. I'm going to need all my strength of mind to bear up against this, Grandma, and I won't have any left to grapple with porridge. Oh, Grandma, I don't know what I'll do when my beautiful teacher goes away. Milty Bolter says he bets Jane Andrews will get the school. I suppose Miss Andrews is very nice, but I know she won't understand things like Miss Shirley. Diana also took a very pessimistic view of affairs. It will be horribly lonesome here next winter. She mourned, one twilight when the moonlight was raining airy silver through the cherry boughs and filling the east gable with a soft, dreamlike radiance in which the two girls sat and talked, Anne on her low rocker by the window, Diana sitting Turk-fashion on the bed. You and Gilbert will be gone, and the Allens, too. They're going to call Mr. Allen to Charlottetown, and of course he'll accept. It's too mean. We'll be vacant all winter, I suppose, and have to listen to a long string of candidates. And half of them won't be any good. I hope they won't call Mr. Baxter from East Grafton here anyhow, said Anne decidedly. He wants the call, but he does preach such gloomy sermons. 
Mr. Bell says he's a, pre a minister of the old school, but Mrs. Lynde says there's nothing whatever the matter with him but indigestion. His wife isn't a very good cook, it seems, and Mrs. Lynde says that when a man has to eat sour bread two weeks out of three, his theology is bound to get a kink in it somewhere. Mrs. Allen feels very badly about going away. She says everybody has been so kind to her since she came here as a bride that she feels as if she were leaving lifelong friends. And then there's the baby's grave, you know. She says she doesn't see how she can go away and leave that. It was such a little mite of a thing, and only three months old. And she says she is afraid it will miss its mother, although she knows better and wouldn't say so to Mr. Allen for anything. She says she has slipped through the birch grove back of the manse nearly every night to the graveyard and sung a little lullaby to it. She told me all about it last evening when I was up putting some of those early wild roses on Matthew's grave. I promised her that as long as I was in Avonlea, I would put flowers on the baby's grave, and when I was away, I felt sure that... that I would do it, supplied Diana heartily. Of, of course I will. And I'll put them on Matthew's grave, too, for your sake, Anne. Oh, thank you. I meant to ask you, too, if you would. And on little Hester Gray's, too? Please don't forget hers. Do you know, I've thought and dreamed so much about little Hester Gray that she has become strangely real to me. I think of her back there in her little garden, in that cool, still, green corner, and I've a fancy that if I could steal back there some spring evening, just at the magic time twixt light and dark, and tiptoe so softly up the beech hill that my footsteps could not frighten her, I would find the garden just as it used to be, all sweet with June lilies and early roses, with the tiny house beyond it all hung with vines, and little Hester Gray would be there, with her soft eyes, and the wind ruffling her dark hair, wandering about, putting her fingertips under her the chins of the lilies, and whispering secrets with the roses. And I would go forward, oh, so softly, and hold out my hands and say to her, Little Hester Gray, won't you let me be your playmate, for I love the roses too? And we would sit down on the old bench and talk a little and dream a little or just be beautifully silent together. And then the moon would rise and I would look around me and there would be no Hester Gray and no little vine-hung house and no roses, only an old waste garden starred with June lilies amid the grasses and the wind sighing oh so sorrowfully in the cherry trees and I would not know whether it had been real or if I had just imagined it all. Diana crawled up and got her back against the headboard of the bed. When your companion of twilight hour said such spooky things, it was just as well not to be able to fancy there was anything behind you. I'm afraid the Improvement Society will go down when you and Gilbert are both gone, she remarked dolefully. Not a bit of fear of it said Anne briskly, coming back from dreamland to the affairs of practical life. It is too firmly established for that, especially since the older people are becoming so enthusiastic about it. Look what they are doing this summer for their lawns and lanes. Besides, I'll be watching for hints at Redmond, and I'll write a paper for it next winter and send it over. Don't take such a gloomy view of things, Diana. And don't grudge me my little hour of gladness and jubilation now. Later on, when I have to go away... I'll feel anything but glad. It's all right for you to be glad. You're going to college and you'll have a jolly time and make heaps of lovely new friends. I hope I shall make new friends, said Anne thoughtfully. The possibilities of making new friends help to make life very fascinating. But no matter how many new friends I make, they'll never be as dear to me as the old ones. 
especially a certain girl with black eyes and dimples. Can you guess who she is, Diana? But there'll be so many clever girls at Redmond, sighed Diana, and I'm only a stupid little country girl who says I seen sometimes, though I really know better when I stop to think. Well, of course, these past two years have really been too pleasant to last. I know somebody who is glad you are going to Redmond anyhow. And I'm going to ask you a question, a serious question. Don't be vexed, and do answer seriously. Do you care anything for Gilbert? Ever so much as a friend, and not a bit in the way you mean, said Anne calmly and decidedly. She also thought she was speaking sincerely. Diana sighed. She wished, somehow, that Anne had answered differently. Don't you mean ever to be married, Anne? Perhaps some day, when I meet the right one, said Anne, smiling dreamily up at the moonlight. But how can you be sure when you do meet the right one? persisted Diana. Oh, I shall know him. Something would tell me. You know what my ideal is, Diana. But people's ideals change sometimes. Mine won't, and I couldn't care for any man who didn't fulfill it. What if you never meet him? Then I shall die an old maid, was the cheerful response. I dare say it isn't the hardest death by any means. Oh, I suppose that dying would be easy enough. It's the living an old maid I shouldn't like, said Diana, with no intention of being humorous. Although I wouldn't mind being an old maid very much if I could be one like Mrs. Miss Lavender. But I never could be. When I'm forty-five, I'll be horribly fat. And while there might be some romance about a thin old maid, there couldn't possibly be about any about a fat one. Oh, mind you, Nelson Atkins proposed to Ruby Gillis three weeks ago. Ruby told me all about it. She says she never had any intention of taking him, because any one who married him will have to go in with the old folks. But Ruby says that he made such a perfectly beautiful and romantic proposal that it simply swept her off her feet. But she didn't want to do anything rash, so she asked for a week to consider. And two days later, she was at a meeting of the sewing circle at his mother's, and there was a book called The Complete Guide to Etiquette lying on the parlor table. Ruby said she simply couldn't describe her feelings when in a section of it headed the, Depart or the Deportment of Courtship and Marriage, she found the very proposal Nelson had made, word for word. She went home and wrote him a perfectly scathing refusal, and she says his father and mother have taken turns watching him ever since for fear he'll drown himself in the river. But Ruby says they needn't be afraid. For in the deportment of courtship and marriage, it told how a rejected lover should behave, and there's nothing about drowning in that. And she says Wilbur Blair is literally pining away for her, but she's perfectly helpless in the matter. Anne made an impatient movement. I hate to say it. It seems so disloyal. But, well, I don't like Ruby Gillis now. I liked her when we went to school in Queens together, though not so well as you and Jane, of course. But this last year at Carmody, she seems so different, so... So. I know, nodded Diana. It's the Gillis coming out in her. She can't help it. Mrs. Lynde says that if ever a Gillis girl thought about anything but the boys, she never showed it in her walk and conversation. She talks about nothing but boys, and what compliments they pay her, and how crazy they all are about her at Carmody. And the strange thing is, they are, too. Diana admitted this somewhat resentfully. 
Last night when I saw her in Mr. Blair's store, she whispered to me that she'd just made a new mash. I wouldn't ask her who it was, because I knew she was dying to be asked. Well, it's what Ruby always wanted, I suppose. You remember, even when she was little, she always said she meant to have dozens of bows when she grew up, and have the very gayest time she could before she settled down. She's so different from Jane, isn't she? Jane is such a nice, sensible, ladylike girl. Dear old Jane is a jewel, agreed Anne. But, she added, leaned, leaning forward to bestow a tender pat on the plump, dimpled little hand hanging over her pillow, there's nobody like my own Diana, after all. Do you remember that evening we first met Diana, and swore eternal friendship in your garden? We've kept that oath, I think. We've never had a quarrel, nor even a coolness. I shall never forget the thrill that went over me the day you told me you loved me. I'd had such a lonely, starved heart all through my childhood. I'm just beginning to realize how starved and lonely it really was. Nobody cared anything for me or wanted to be bothered with me. I should have been miserable if it hadn't been for that strange little dream life of mine, wherein I imagined all the friends and love I craved. But when I came to Green Gables, everything was changed. And then I met you. You don't know what your friendship meant to me. I want to thank you, here and now, dear, for the warm and true affection you've always given me. And always, always will, sobbed Diana. I shall never love anybody, any girl, half as well as I love you. And if I ever do marry and have a little girl of my own, I'm going to name her Anne. All right, we are going to stop there. Uh, that ended up being a rather long one because they were both kind of long chapters. And I suspect the next one is going to be about uh, that long too. So it's also going to be a rather long installment. But anyway, we're coming close to the end. Only a couple more installments left. So join me here next time. We'll continue on with uh, Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. So thank you very much. Have a good night, everybody.